think about heaven. Have you been thinking about heaven? What does heaven mean to you? What does our thinking about heaven have to do with what the Bible says about heaven? Are we thinking about the same thing God describes? What about heaven? What about the end of all things? What about the end of time? Where are we all headed? Where is this life going? Where is this world headed? Well, we're going to talk about those kinds of things today on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we have challenged each other and we have decided that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And if we believe in heaven, we must have confidence that God is going to work things out. And one day, he'll make all the wrong things right, a phrase I really like because there's a lot of wrong things in the world. And one day he'll bring heaven to pass. Well, what does that all mean and how does that apply to us? We want to explore that a little bit through the words of the Bible and especially the words of Jesus to help us understand and come to a little bit better perspective, a little bit more settled idea about what heaven is. Too often it brings fear to mind and we need to banish fear because God said, don't be afraid. Too often it brings thoughts of irresponsibility because this world is not my home. I'm just passing through, people say. And there's some sense to that. But what about heaven? Can we have a better understanding of what is going to happen and where all of these events that we see unfolding around us, all of the things that the Bible talks about, where is all of that heading? Now, a lot of people want to go to heaven. I don't think I would have ever come across anybody who didn't want to go to heaven. People didn't want to go to a heaven that was characterized by playing a harp while sitting on a cloud. I get that. That's not very appealing to many of us. But Eugene Peterson wrote a very good book about the end of times and, and the things that would be coming to pass. And, and in that book called Reversed Thunder, he made this statement, quote, many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida. They think the weather will be an improvement and the people decent, end of quote. Well, I think probably a lot of people do think of heaven that way. They think that the weather will be better in heaven, and they think people will be good. And I got to tell you that in Florida, the weather is an improvement over most places. So yes, that part of it's right. And yes, I think heaven will have good weather. I often joke with people about what temperature it will be in heaven, and most of them want it to be warmer than I do. And so finally, I came up with the idea. I said, hey, heaven's going to have great temperature. It's going to feel like the perfect temperature that you like, so that whatever temperature the the air around us is, it'll feel the way we want it to feel. Well, I'm just joking, of course, but heaven is a specific place that God describes in a few specific ways, and we're going to look at that just a little bit today. And as far as better weather, like some people want to move to Florida because the weather's better, well, it's sometimes hot in Florida, and these are the days that it's hot, and it's humid, and these are the days it's becoming more humid. In fact, it seems like these days, every day, the sun feels a little bit more intense, and that's typical of this time of the year. And so, yes, we will have some really warm weather days, but the thing that I always tell people who wonder about the weather in Florida, yes, it can be unpleasantly hot and humid sometimes, at least from my perspective, but I'd say to them, the interesting thing about the weather in Florida is we never fight the weather, or seldom. We seldom have a day that it rains all day and we fight the weather. 
Yes, we have thunderstorms sometimes, but they come and go pretty quickly. We're never really fighting the weather day in and day out, like some places that have a little bit more challenging climate. Well, heaven isn't all about the weather. Heaven isn't all about decent people, although there will only be decent people in heaven. And by the way, if you're wondering about the people in Florida, yeah, we're decent down here too. I think you'd like us a lot. We're a lot like people everywhere. If you like people where you are, you'll like people in Florida. If you think people are where you are, are old grouches, you'll find plenty of old grouches in Florida, but that's largely an inside job. And that's a little bit beside the point, isn't it? We're talking about faith and absolute confidence in God. We're talking about what is God up to and where are we going? And I want to take a pastoral look at this. Yeah, we're going to talk about some specific things from the Bible, but largely I want to help regular people like you, like me, come to grips with this idea of heaven and what this is all about. Now, the reason I take that kind of approach is because there's a lot of confusion around the end times thinking and what might happen and what might not happen. So yeah, I'm a little concerned about all of the, all of the confusing stuff that goes on. But really, the reason I want to take this pastoral approach is because I'm a pastor. And, and I talk to people, and I hear people express their thoughts and concerns. And largely, I want to help us come to a point where we're more at ease with the idea of what's going to happen next, or what is going to happen relative to heaven. So let's, let's think a little bit uh, about heaven and the end of times, and let's think a little bit about our perspective on that. I, I think that a lot of people seem a little anxious about it, if that's maybe being polite. Maybe people live in fear of it a little bit more than they're just anxious. They seem concerned. They read things in the Bible and their descriptions of events that they think are really uh, both incredible and uh, worrisome. And yeah, I read those too. But I want us to think about what kind of perspective that, that Jesus would want us to have when it comes to heaven? And, and how does he want us to live in the meantime? Now, I lived through the 60s. I wasn't very old in the 60s. Old enough to remember there was a lot of emphasis on the end of time. There was a lot of concern about what's going to happen. It was really presented as I remember it. Now, remember, I was really young, so I didn't really have a, a, a perspective that could be counted on. I'm just kind of explaining the context of the times that I've lived through to help us think our way through this and come to a better place. There was a lot of fear. I remember that that was the days that there were movies that were shown in church and, and at youth groups, and some of those had fearful things pictured, and you better get right with God or else kind of things. And so there was a certain amount of, of dread associated with that. I remember there was a certain amount of what if Jesus comes back and you're left behind? A certain amount of that. And, and uh, that, that really was unsettling. I didn't find that helpful at all. I, I guess, I'm not sure, I never heard anybody say this, but I guess what they were trying to do is they were trying to scare all of us straight so we would realize we need to, to fly right and follow Jesus. Well, oh, okay, I, I agree we need to fly right, we need to follow Jesus, but I don't really think that in the Gospels, Jesus was intent on scaring us into following him. And so that, that context has always really bothered me that we, that we get caught up in the fear of such things. Because now I want to step back a little bit and say, 
Well, what about joy? Isn't heaven supposed to be a joyful place? And to be sure, we sang songs that were joyful about heaven, uh, songs like, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And that's true, and people love that song, and, and I remember that, but I remember the other more. And so we just need to, to ask ourselves, what about the, the context of our lives, and what about a more maybe we should say mature perspective. I don't think the people in those days were immature. That's not what I'm implying, but maybe a little bit more thoughtful perspective on, on what God was really up to in all of this so that we, so that we know how to deal with our life and times. We, we know clearly, and, and we say it often, at least I say it often, I hope you say it often to yourself and to others, that the Bible tells us not to be afraid. And so I don't want us ever to be afraid. I think that's exactly the wrong thing. We, we must not be afraid. And yet, if we approach the idea of heaven or the return of Jesus or the end of time from a position of, of alarm or anxiety or fear, then we're not really living out what God has invited us to, to live out. We're not, really, we're not really being the people he's called us to be. And so we need to really take a careful look at all of those kind of things. So, so let's take a look at a few places in the Bible that, that talk about this. It's not everything. There's, there's a lot more than we could cover in one program for sure. But a few things that stand out to me that we ought to, that we ought to consider. And, and much of what I want to talk about today, uh, really most of it, are the words of Jesus. And when we think about interpreting the Bible, what Jesus says really matters. It matters a lot. It matters more than some of the others people will say. So I want to take a look at the words of Jesus and what he says and, and try to help us step back a little bit from all of the sensationalism and think about how now do we live this out? How does this apply to us going forward? So in Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 25, there are some important things. There's more than what I'm going to read the whole chapter is important, of course, but I want to start with Luke 21, verse 25. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, and then I want to talk about a couple of things that, that we see here. These are the words of Jesus. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world, because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Now, that does refer to some things we might call fearful events. Granted, not arguing with that at all. But every so often when a world event happens, uh, a war breaks out like has just happened in Ukraine or some other natural disaster, uh, a storm or a tsunami or something that is out of the ordinary and, and it gets everybody's attention and they wonder what's going on. Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of time? Well, one of the things I always remember and I want to encourage you to focus on is what Jesus said. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Now, most of the time when these events take place, people get afraid, and they'll say things like, is this the end of the world? You know, and, and I don't know whether it is. I 
never really thought that it was, but I do want us to think this. When you see something that fits the description Jesus is giving here, our response should be, oh, here's what Jesus said that we should, we should consider. When these things take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is near. Now, isn't redemption a good thing? Isn't it a good thing that, that it's not far off, according to Jesus, that, that we're going to be redeemed out of this world of, of sin and brokenness? That's what I think we need to think about, is the hopeful that, yes, these things are, are uh, not pleasant to contemplate, not pleasant maybe to live through, depending on whether we're living through them or somebody else is. They aren't desirable, but Jesus said, your redemption is near when all this begins to happen. And that is a good thing. Don't you agree? Shouldn't we concentrate on Jesus' words saying, when all this stuff starts happening, your redemption is near. So, so burn that into your brain today, that when all these things, whenever something happens and you begin to wonder, burn it into your brain that the response should be what Jesus encouraged. Hey, our redemption is near. And one day, as I say all the time, and I sometimes think people are tired of hearing about it, one day God is going to make all of the wrong things right. And that's the essence of redemption. So let's not be, let's not be caught up in the, um, the anxiety, in the worry, in the fear, in the dread. Let's stop and take a breath and say, wait a minute, Jesus said, and he did, Jesus said, when all this stuff starts to happen, your redemption is near. So get ready and be ready. And that brings us to another part of the context that I want us to have as we look at the the, the ideas behind the end of time or heaven and, and going to heaven and heaven arriving and all the things that we're going to get to. But I often think that we spend too much time in other places in the Bible and not enough time in Matthew chapter 24 and also chapter 25, because that's where Jesus talks a lot about the things to come, the end of time. Now, he does talk about some things that will happen, and the Bible does talk about some things that will happen here and there, and it generally talks about them in, in less specific ways, shall we say, than what we want to hear it. Generally, it's descriptive. Generally, it gives us an idea, but it doesn't give us a lot of detail. Now, here's the, here's the caution that I think we all need to bring to this whole idea of the end of time. What is it about us that makes us want to ask the question, what's going to happen next? And when is it going to happen? Now, to be sure, the disciples asked that, and, and we'll look at that a little bit. I want to read a few verses here. To be sure, they were curious about that too. So I don't, I don't want to discount our natural curiosity. We, we are interested in things, particularly the things that will affect us and the people we care about, that will affect the world and change everything. I, I understand our curiosity. I have a lot less understanding for the, um, how should I say, how should I say politely, the focus on all of the what ifs as though everybody has to wring the last little bit out of every little word or comma or period in the Bible. And so there develops a bit of an obsession with what's going to happen next. Now, 
we're cautioned in the Bible about worrying about predicting the future. All right. But today we see a rise of people who are kind of fixated on predicting the future. And I think we need to, to step back from that a little bit and to realize that, that God has all of this and that he said to us that when we see these things that he described in Luke, that our redemption is near, that while we naturally will be curious, the same as the disciples were, we should avoid an obsession with, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? And what's going to happen the next day? And we need to understand the future. And part of the reason that I say that is because we have lived through, those of us who have lived a little while, we have lived through the coming and going of one person after another who said, I know when Jesus is coming back, so here's what you need to do. And occasionally they would encourage the people that believed them to sell all their stuff and to gather in one place because they wouldn't need all of that. And Jesus was going to be coming back, so they were going to get ready. I don't quite know why it was necessary to sell all their stuff. If Jesus was coming back, why did that matter? That stuff's not going to matter one way or the other. And selling it all isn't going to benefit them if he's coming back in the next few days. So why would they do all? I don't, I don't understand all of that. But the point is not so much those details. The point is we need to have a little longer view of these things and, and lay down our obsession with what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know of anyone that can predict the future. I know we can anticipate events based a little bit upon what the Bible describes, but a lot of those events are not that concretely described, and they are more, uh, maybe we would say, imaginatively described than concretely described. And so we just need to realize that, that we can trust God, and sometimes we will understand these things better as we look back. And that's true with a lot of biblical prophecy. We understand a lot of the Old Testament statements a lot better now than they did then, because we look back and we can see how God unfolded history and how they make sense when we look in our rearview mirror and understand them. And you know, it could very well be that these ideas about the future will be much better understood in our rearview mirror, and we need to have a little better perspective on that. So, Let's, let's jump over here to Matthew chapter 24, and I just want to read a few verses. I can't necessarily go through the whole chapter at this point, but because I want to get to someplace else in the end. But a few things for context. That's what we're trying to develop here, a little context on things, and to not be afraid to, to understand what Jesus has said to us. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him, and this is referring to Jesus, approached Jesus privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So yes, remember I said just a moment ago, the disciples had the same kind of questions we do. They were naturally curious, and listen closely to what Jesus says to them, and I'm only going to read the first part of this just to reinforce what I think is a helpful perspective for us today. So in verse 4, Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. 
Well, that's what Jesus said is going to happen. So we need to be aware of all of this stuff. And notice that he said, did you get this? See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place. See that you are not alarmed. That's important. That's what, what I've started out by saying. Let's not be concerned because it, they have to happen, but your redemption is near. Remember, that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. The other thing that it's important to, to notice here is that the very first thing Jesus says in response to their question is, watch out that no one deceives you. See, I think we need to spend more time on that idea than on some of the ideas of trying to, to parse every little thing that, that is said in, in the Bible and try to equate it to something that's taking place in our day and our time. Jesus is clearly saying that we shouldn't be deceived. We don't need to worry. We need to trust him that, that all these things are going to have to take place, but they're the beginning. They're the beginning of what must take place. And I guess what he's saying uh, pretty clearly, but without saying it, is trust me, have confidence in what I'm telling you. Don't be deceived. Don't be caught up in all of this sort of thing. Is it a fair thing to say that, that if we get caught up in anxious worry about the end of time, if we get caught up in fear and, and all that goes with that, is it fair to say that we're being deceived? Because Jesus seems to be trying to put their minds at ease here, not make them anxious. He's trying to help them understand what they can understand and what they need to understand. He's trying to help us understand what we can understand and what we need to understand. But over all of this, he's saying, don't be fooled by all the things that go on. Don't be fooled by the people that step up and claim to be a Messiah. This stuff's going to happen. It's just the beginning. Going back to Luke, your redemption is near. Have confidence in that. I think that helps a lot for me anyway. I hope it helps you. Now, staying in Matthew 24, I want to take a look at a couple of other ideas to help us kind of keep our our thoughts, uh, how should I say, focused. Well, in verse 35 of Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So that's another indication that we should have confidence in what Jesus says. And we're going to see that same phrase used in a minute when we look at some verses in Revelation. The idea that, that when Jesus says it, we can depend upon it. So what's he said to us so far? These things are going to have to happen. It's the beginning. Your redemption is near. He doesn't say it, but he certainly implies it. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Don't be deceived. People will try to deceive you. Don't fall for any of this fear-mongering obsession with what's going to happen. Don't get caught up in all these kind of things because people will try to deceive you. Don't be deceived. Trust me. And here he says, you can trust me because my words are reliable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And in Revelation, we're going to see how it describes what this verse talks about, that heaven and earth passes away. And we're going to see it reinforced that Jesus says, quite clearly, he says, don't worry. Don't worry. You can depend on what I say. It's going to be okay. So let's skip to verse 36 now. We just read about the heaven and earth passing away, and we can depend upon Jesus' words. Now, what words can we depend upon of Jesus' words? Well, verse 36. Now, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, 
except the Father alone. So much attention has been given, so much attention has been given to trying to predict when Jesus will come back. So much. It just makes me crazy. Because if we're going to believe the words of Jesus, then we need to just give that idea up. We're not going to know. Jesus says, I don't know. Only God the Father knows. Now, if only God the Father knows, is it reasonable to think that any of us is going to know? Is it reasonable to think that, that we're going to somehow read between the lines of the Bible? After Jesus has says his words are faithful and true, that his words will never pass away, do we somehow think we're smarter than Jesus, that we're going to sort through all of that and come up with a day and time, and we're going to put things together that Jesus didn't put together, and that Jesus said he didn't know? Now, see, we need to think more clearly about these kinds of things. We need to recognize that, that these words of Jesus to us, that, that no one knows, only the Father knows, we need to take those to heart and trust him. There was a song some years ago, I, I kind of liked the song, and I thought it really, really communicated this one idea very well. It's what I remember from it. Maybe it's because I, that's what I needed to hear. I don't know. But, it but the words said that even now, God could be standing up right now to give the call to end it all. Well, that's possible. We don't know. We can't know. But what we do know is that God knows. And Jesus wants to assure us and tell us that we should trust him. We should see all these things that are happening around us, and we should realize that's the beginning and that our redemption is near. Don't be afraid of all of this, but anticipate our redemption is near. He reminds us in Matthew chapter 24, we just talked about it, that we shouldn't be deceived. Don't be fooled by all this stuff. You know, listen to what Jesus says. Don't get caught up in all of these things. Don't be obsessed by them. Don't let them cause you to be afraid. Don't listen to the people that try to stir up anxiety in your life. Because a lot of these things that we see going on around us are going to happen, and they've been happening in one way or another for years. This isn't the first time wars have sprung up. This isn't the first time people have wondered, does this mean the end of time? Those things have been happening for a long time. What we need to understand is what Jesus says, your redemption draws near. I don't know what near is. I don't know. God's time is God's time. My version of near and your version of near could be very different, but it is an assurance that redemption is on the way, and we should not be alarmed or afraid. We should be confident in him. Now, we're going to, have to take a break in a minute. I'm sure I can't finish all of this right now, but I want to at least introduce this idea from a story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. And I think I'll read the story, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. But in Matthew chapter 25, he gives a parable. These are the words of Jesus, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flask with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. That ends the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 25, and I read through verse 13. So we're going to talk about this because not only does the Bible say to us in so many ways not to be afraid that God has all of this and our redemption is near, not only does it say don't be deceived, but it says very clearly, be ready. Be ready. Now, why don't we focus more on that? than on the fear and the dread, the anxiety. Be ready. Hmm, we need to think about some more of these kind of things. And we're going to do that in just a minute. We're going to take a break and I'll come back and we want to finish up this parable. And then we want to look at some words from Revelation, some words that describe a little bit of what we refer to as heaven and give us a real picture of how it's all going to work out in the end. And by the way, in the end, it works out just fine. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be anxious because God's got all of this. And he's going to show us a glimpse of what's going to happen from Revelation chapter 21. And he's going to remind us, be ready for the coming of the Lord. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I want to encourage you to hang on. We'll be right back and finish this up. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. 
It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch each other in God's direction, and we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're trying to develop that confidence more and more, and we're trying to challenge each other to have confidence in God, to not be anxious, to not be afraid, but to actually trust Him. And we've been talking about the idea of heaven the idea of going to heaven, some of the ideas of the end of time, and we're reminding ourselves that in the words of Jesus, we should be anticipating that because some of these things that the Bible describes are going to happen. They necessarily must, and we shouldn't be worried about that. We should stand up and look up because our redemption is on its way. We should be careful that we're not deceived, that all these things are going to happen, and we should make sure that people don't come along and, and deceive us in one way or another, trying to help help us think they are the Messiah or that they have some inside information that even Jesus didn't have. So we don't want to be deceived. We want to actually be ready. And that's what we ended with. We ended with the story that is often called the parable of the 10 virgins. And this English translation uses that word virgins. It, It would make more sense to us if we think of that as bridesmaids because in those days they had attendance to the bride, like we have bridesmaids. And so when it describes them waiting for the groom, that was a common understanding. That's the way it worked in those days. They would wait for the groom who would leave his home and go to the bride's home and claim his bride and take her back home to the place where they would live, back at his father's residence. He would have prepared a place for her. And so these bridesmaids were out anticipating the coming of the groom. They knew he was on his way. And so they were prepared and ready, except some of them were more prepared than others. Some of them had extra oil for their lamps because they were well prepared and some of them did not. And so the point Jesus is making is that we need to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. We need to be prepared for his coming because the ones who had to go and make preparation after he arrived were left out. And so he's reminding us that there's not time to make preparation after the fact. We need to be ready for when he comes, because that's the key 
message of this parable, be ready. You know, I wish people would spend as much time being ready as they spend worrying about the what ifs and the what might happens. Doesn't that make sense to you? Shouldn't we concentrate on being ready? Isn't the Bible about helping us be ready and helping us be a part of God's kingdom, helping us be a part of God's family, helping us be a part of the covenant people, however you want to describe it? Isn't the Bible about helping people be ready? And that's what this parable is about. Be ready. Focus on that. Don't focus on fear. Don't focus on dread. Be ready. I think that's so much more helpful than all of these other things that, that prop up from time to time. So much more helpful. And I hope you will think about that more carefully going forward, because it makes all the difference in the world when we have the right perspective on things. It, it, it just helps us put aside all of the fear and all of the anxious worry. And, and I just don't think, I don't think, I know we aren't meant for that. So lay that stuff down. And, and trust the words of Jesus and be ready. Turn away from the things that God tells you to turn away from and follow Jesus. That's what it amounts to. That's the invitation of Jesus. Change your life. Believe the good news. Follow me. That's what he said over and over. Well, now I want us to turn our attention, having kind of given a little context to that, to something that the book of Revelation teaches us about the end of time. And often I think we concentrate on the things that will happen up to the, the final end of time and the final uh, satisfaction of all of the making the wrong things right. And, and we forget that this, this is what we want to look forward to. So we want to look at that through the words of Revelation. Now, every time you mention the book of Revelation, people get all, all worried about that and they wonder what that's all about. Well, what is, it, what is it a revelation of? If it's a revelation, is it a revelation of, of events leading up to the end of time? Well, yeah, there's some of that. Is it a revelation of the end times themselves? Well, yeah, I guess you could say that. Is it a revelation of what God is doing even now as the world moves toward the end of the age? Well, yeah, I guess you could say it's a revelation of that. But what is it a revelation of, really? See, this is what we miss. Listen to the opening words of Revelation from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Aha! So really, this book that we look to for all of these things and causes so many people to be alarmed is foundationally a revelation of Jesus. Now, isn't a revelation of good, of Jesus, a good thing? Isn't that what we say at Christmas time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus? That it's a good thing that, that God came into the world? Isn't it a good thing that Jesus is revealed to people? Isn't that positive? Isn't that to be desired? Well, of course it is. And so we need to focus on that and, and understand the revelation that God wants us to understand, that he's revealing Jesus and how Jesus, beginning with his death, burial, and resurrection, is putting the world right, and he's solving all of the problems, everything, and he's going to make things in the end completely right, and all of the wrongs will be finished, done, gone. Revelation chapter 21, a classic section. We use it in a lot of context, and I want us to think our way through it today. So beginning with, with Revelation 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And we're ending with verse six. So here's a description of what we loosely generally refer to as heaven. And it says in the very first verse that I read, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So right from the beginning of Revelation chapter 21, we get the idea that, that the first heaven and the first earth are gone. Now, we need to clarify that a little bit because when they refer to heaven, and generally speaking in the ancient world, their understanding of it was sky. Now we use a different word. We use the word sky for sky, obviously. And when we say heaven, we think of that place that God is preparing for his people. So when they say the, the first heaven and the first earth passed away, that's the idea there is that the, that the natural world, the sky and the earth had passed away. They were gone. And he also says that the sea was no more. Now, that one really got my attention because I thought, What's, what, why no more sea? Why is that gone? And uh, it seemed a little strange to me because does that mean there won't be any boats or ships in the future? Is that, is that what that's about? And, and I don't know that I came to a real conclusive answer to that. I don't know what God has in mind completely, but I do know this, that one of the things that God is communicating to us here is that, that the end of chaos and evil has come. And the reason we know that is because in ancient times, they associated the concept of the sea with chaos and evil. And so when it, when it says in here that the sea was no more, that's a picture for us to realize that chaos and evil are no more. God is taking care of them. And it says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the writer of Revelation, saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so the, the clear understanding of that is that God has created a new heaven and a new earth. So what he is seeing is a new creation. And one of the things that we ought to remind ourselves is that we often think, and understandably so, about how God is redeeming people and how God has created heaven for people. And he he's does his healing work in the lives of people, and he does. But he also does that for creation because the scriptures teach us that even creation was marred by the entry of sin into the world. And so God is taking the, the whole gamut of his creation and making it new. So he's recreating the heavens and the earth. So there's a new sky and a new earth because the old is gone. Then the writer says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So a holy city, obviously a parallel to Jerusalem because it's referred to as the holy city, that was coming down out of heaven because God had prepared a place for people to live. It's holy because God's presence would be there. It's holy because sin and evil were banished. It's holy because it's set apart for God and his people. And it's a picture of something familiar to us, the holy city Jerusalem, of a new holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So perfectly ready for God and his people. Now, one of the things we shouldn't miss here, and we may need to remind ourselves again in a minute, is that what's going on is the earth and the heavens are returning to the way God intended them to be, because he has banished evil, and now he can create and make all of the wrongs right and present to people this new creation. The result of banishing evil is a recreated heaven and earth, just as God always intended it to be. We haven't always thought of it that way, but it's a clear parallel because it says the first earth passed away, first heaven passed away, the sea was no more, and there was a new heaven and a new earth, new creation. Remember Eden? So think how God wanted to go back and to make all of the wrongs right, including to make creation as it was meant to be with evil banished. Verse three, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now, I don't know, and it doesn't identify who's speaking here. It, because it's from the throne, it could be that, that God is speaking, but it doesn't sound like it. But someone from the throne room of, of God says this, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Now, what does it mean that there will be no more crying, that God will wipe every tear from our eyes? What does it mean that that death will no longer exist? What does it mean that grief is gone or crying or pain? Everybody who's been in pain, chronic pain or, or something that's just been painful for a season knows that pain is no fun. And he says here that, that all of that will be no more. Now, how can that be? What has to happen for that to be true? Because it's hard for us to conceive of a, of a world like that. Well, how did death come about? It came about because of sin. How did grief come about? Came about because of sin. How did pain come about? Came about because of sin. And so what God is saying here, that all of that evil, all of that sin, all of the wrong things are passed away, and they will be no more because God has dealt with them decisively, and they're gone. And so as a consequence of them being gone and dealt with, that he's satisfied everything. You know, maybe the way to think about that is, um, is to realize that, that there was a cause of the bad things that have happened in the world, to put it very simply, and that cause was original sin. Well, God dealt with 
all sin decisively on the cross. And so now all of those consequences of sin are no more. It's a little hard for us to conceive of a world like that, but it's a, it's a great idea, don't you think? You know, we have people in our day that want to talk about how to make a utopia on earth. Well, all of the things that people want to have happen for the benefit of people, all of the problems that people want to solve are described as solved by God. When he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, when he talks about wiping away every tear, no more death, grief, crying, pain, all of that gone. That's what God is aiming to do. So if you want that kind of world, follow God. He knows how to make it right. And he knows how to make a world you'll want to live in. And one of the most intriguing parts of this whole passage in Revelation chapter 21 is, is where this loud voice from the throne says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now, we don't really have quite the same grasp of this, I think, as the ancient peoples did, because we don't think about God in quite the same way because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But rewind in your mind back to the early days of God leading Israel out of Egypt, and he led them out by a cloud during the day and a fire at night. It was the visible evidence of his presence with them and of his presence leading them. He protected them so they could get across the Red Sea, protected them from the army that was chasing them. And then he moved on and led them to Sinai, gave them the law. Moses learned all the things he needed to learn. God instructed them how to, how to camp as a people and how to put the tabernacle in the center of their camp. And they built it just as God described. And then God actually arranged a, an area in that tabernacle very sacred, set apart. People weren't to, to mess with that. Very strict rules as to how anybody should even go in there because God came down and he was with his people. He lived right in the center of their camp. All of their tents were around that tabernacle in, in the center and God was there. And that was their continual reminder that God was with them. Well, when they moved, God led them to move by the cloud, leading them on, and, and his presence remained in them when they made camp. And then fast forward a lot of years until they built a permanent temple in Jerusalem, and God's visible presence came down into that temple, and there in the Holy of Holies, God lived among his people. So this idea of God with his people is a continuous kind of image all the way through the revelation of God to his people in the Old Testament and all the way to us. And then the image is even strengthened when Jesus goes back to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us. And so God dwells with his people in a way he hadn't before, but the emphasis is still on God is dwelling with his people. That's a, that's a really important understanding, a really important imagery, because in this new holy city, it says clearly that God would dwell with people. Now, here's another fascinating idea about that. We often think about going to heaven, and that's because we conceive of heaven being above us. But here, in this passage in Revelation, God is saying that this new heaven and new earth comes down, 
and it's as though God comes down to live with his people. Uh, it's, it's just remarkable. It says God's dwelling is with humanity. So wherever God has been dwelling, now it says he's going to dwell with his people in this newly created heaven and earth. And, and that's a very significant imagery. Do you remember it? At Advent and Christmas, we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. You see, God came down to be with us in the person of Jesus. He had shown that previously in his coming down into the tabernacle and temple to be with people. He showed that with the coming of the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us. And now at the end of time, God is saying, finally, we're going to have a permanent place and we're going to dwell together. God's dwelling is with people and he will be with his people, and we will be with him. And that is a vivid, clear picture of heaven. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us something extraordinarily significant, that all of the celebration we do at Advent and Christmas about the coming of Jesus and of God with us, that will all be completed at the end of time when God lives in that new city, that new Jerusalem, with us. We should not overlook that, the significance of God coming down to live with people. God came down in the person of Jesus. God will come down to live with his people. Well, let's continue and finish this up. Verse 5, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And we're going to stop there. There's plenty more to be read in, in the scriptures about all of this that Jesus is giving us. But this really, to me, sums it up so well, because from the throne, the one seated on the throne, this time the clear implication is that this is God himself speaking in verse 5, saying, look, I am making everything new. And that's what's happening. All of the old order of things that was marred and ruined by sin is now being made new. It's the very idea of what God wants to do for us when we turn and follow him, when we change our lives and believe the good news and follow Jesus. Then he lives with us and in us, and he is making everything new in us in anticipation of that time when it says, I am making everything new, everything new. It's, it's what I describe as he's making all the wrongs right. Only it's more than that because it's going to be new. It's not just repairing or fixing. It's going to be making new. All of the rights that were marred by wrongs are gone so that everything left is new. He again tells us that his words are faithful and true why we need to listen to what Jesus says, particularly about these things that cause people so much fearful anxiety. And then he said, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what he means by that is that he has finally accomplished all that he set out to accomplish. From the moment that sin began to mess up this world, God began to take steps to finish it and make it right. And now he says, it is done. So when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, then we understand that at that point, Jesus having become sin for us and died as the penalty for sin, from that point on, 
Satan's claim on people was broken because God himself had satisfied any claim Satan would have on people because Jesus atoned for the sin of the world. So when he says it is finished, the power of sin is broken. That's it. Done. Satan is a defeated foe. He just doesn't know it yet. He'll get his. That's a different part of the book of Revelation. And now God says it is done. So what he means here now is that it is done. Not only has sin been decisively dealt with, but evil has been banished. Evil is gone, and a new heaven and a new earth is here, and it's a place for God and his people to live forever. It is done. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which means he started it, he finished it. He's the completion, and we can trust him because he's got it all in hand. And then he finally says that he will give freely freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. So if you're thirsty today for a place like heaven that the Bible describes, and if you're willing to listen to the words of Jesus and to follow him, then you too can drink freely from the springs of the water of life, because God wants you in heaven with him. He is preparing a place. He's preparing a place for you, for us, a place where he will dwell with us forever, where he will actually come down and make his home with humanity. Think about it this way. One day, we're going to have a new neighbor, and his name is Jesus. Welcome to the neighborhood. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm really glad you joined us today. Uh, I want to thank the church where I'm the pastor, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, for giving us this time together. And I want to thank the Lord for giving us clarity on these things that, that trouble so many people. And if I could accomplish one thing today, it would be to give you more certainty that God's got all of this, and to not worry, and to not be deceived, to not be alarmed, but to actually change your life, believe the good news that God's got this, and trust Him, and walk with Him. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be alarmed. Lift up your head. Your redemption's coming. Don't be deceived. Trust Jesus. His words are faithful and true. And one day, one day, we're going to see that new heaven and new earth. And we're going to live as neighbors with Jesus forever. Well, we'll talk some more next week. You just rejoice in that this week, and I'll talk to you then.